0: G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. This episode is one that I have been so excited to record for however many weeks it took us to, to put it together. Uh, I have Turpa Ritchie and my old friend Jody Booth. Hang on. Now you may know Turpa's name from the episode I did reviewing the Australian National Conference back in July... He is the gentleman that presented the pre well, pre-conference workshop on whiteness looking at colonized thinking and systemic racism, etc within the profession. Uh, that presentation absolutely blew my mind and I was super keen to, I guess extend my own learning and learn more about this and explore this and uh, through conversation. So I'm absolutely stoked. The TurPA and Jody came and had a chat with me. Uh, what will ensue is deep and complex, and I really hope you guys get a lot out of it because I know uh, my mind still is absolutely blown wide open by the conversation that we had. so please enjoy I guess a brief overview of how or the history that it was taught so I went to when was I in primary school in the Early nineties. Well, most of the nineties was my primary school, sort of ninety-one to ninety-seven. I'm sure, Jody was similar. She'll be fine. And
1: a little bit before that, but let's not go there.
0: <laughs> um, but the the basic sort of history and the way it was framed uh, when I went to school was uh, the Europeans discovered discovered Australia, this is the, the words that were, were used when we were taught, um, and they colonised Australia and built settlements and developed, uh, I guess, a, a westernised society in Australia. And it was, I remember reading some of the, I guess, probably kids' history books at the time, and they talked about the natives and the aboriginals that were there, but it was in reflection, it was very much a sort of an us and them and the the Western society sort of came and started this this new new colony in Australia and it, I guess gave the Aboriginal people um, resources and taught them how to, uh I didn't actually use this word, but I guess in a way assimilate with the culture that they were bringing with them. And I think up until... Your your presentation in Sydney, Tirpa, I, I mean, obviously, I had thought about the fact that that was a bit simplified, um, but I'd never really thought on the deeper context of the fact that it was like a very us and them kind of story that's being presented mm. to to kids. Um, what's what would your how how does your I guess opinion or your your view of that differ?
2: Interesting. So um, I guess the, uh, there's a lot of educators that sort of talk about um, why curriculum is so important and the history of the education curriculum of Australia, right, is is very much a Eurocentric, um, um, ethnocentric um, uh, approach and so, you've got this history being taught from this perspective, um, that is one, it's it's male, <laughs> two, it's it's uh, very um, from an upper class, middle uh, middle upper class sort of perspective, and it's based within a uh, Western context, and it's generally got a religious sort of um, affiliations, and so. Naturally, that is going to design the curriculum that's going to talk those particular principles and those particular values. And so, it's not until now that we're starting to sort of um, go through the process of unpacking history and some of the stuff where people are sort of re looking at certain um, uh, points in history, like Bruce Pascoe's New, um around Aboriginal agricultural practices, that we're starting to sort of question how this narrative of history is formed, but also then how do we put it into the education curriculum? And it hasn't necessarily always been the most um, uh, productive sort of conversation around history within Australia. And I think in um, the presentation there's this quote that I use that if it's not in the mind of the classroom, sorry, if it's not in the classroom, it's not in the Australian mind by Lester Rabin-Aridney. And so unless we're sort of teaching these particular um, uh Other perspectives or a perspective that is not the socially dominant perspective we're going to miss this 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 um, fantastic sort of overview and so what that has done though is it's led to I guess um, people coming out of this education system with this very Eurocentric ethnocentric sort of Um, view of history rather than um so if you were to go into um school in the in the the 50s you probably would have learnt around european history and then probably around the 70s and 80s we sort of moved into what is australian history or what's um basically colonial history that um uh, captain cook came and discovered australia and um um the the narrative which um I guess you um, were um, participated, And I was, I was a part of that process as well. I went through that. And that was started around the 1970s and then led to basically right up into the 1989 Australian Bicentennial Celebrations. And so that was a really look at what is our history, uh, who are we as a country, and who do we want to be? And so it created this national idealisation. And so Stuart McIntyre in his book um, and uh, with a chapter in there by Anna Clark. Uh, the history wars, talks about this conflict of interest that one side was um, talking about. Yes, yes, it's this colonial history and Captain Cook and the other side was talking about, um, but what about um, Indigenous Australians that were here? And so there was sort of the terminology, the the white blindfolds versus the black armbands. And so this view of Australian history became these two separate views of history. It was like what was Australian history and what was mm. Aboriginal history here in Australia.
0: Because I think, you know, like, just for the 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 not juxtaposition, but I guess the the tension in that discussion is that the Western view is very much that white people or Captain mm-hmm. Cook or the Dutch or whoever they're talking about at the time discovered this country mm-hmm. that Aboriginal people had been on for I don't know the exact figure it was mm-hmm. tens of thousands of years, yeah.
2: between prior, sixty was and eighty thousand years. Yep.
0: Yeah, that's you know a little bit before yeah. we got here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but and the the way it's written, and obviously it was very it was written by the people that you know colonized, that mm. just discovered, lack of a better term, that came here. Um, mm. it, their version that they've written almost negates that. Mm. You know, mm. sixty to eighty thousand years prior. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Because, there's no. Yeah. I've I've never read even any sort of any kind of history that those people even tried to. Yeah. Learn. Yeah, and like so that, they've never even had that conversation. conversation. Kind of thing
2: and so like, that there's fantastic books out there that talk about um, Bruce Pascoe. Uh, Um, sorry, which is named Reynolds, Why Weren't We Told? And they talk about, like, why weren't we told about this particular history? And so this narrative that we had of Australian history was very, very different from what was probably going on, actually, at that point in time. And so um, uh, as a result, right, we we don't have this complete sort of background knowledge to be able to engage in these sort of conversations about... um, Uh, multiculturalism about uh, social justice and and equity and um, even um, uh, equity across genders and all the um, not so nice uh, isms that you have um, as a response to like racism sexism and and all those all of those things we we aren't equipped with the background knowledge to be able to unpack those things and to talk about those things it's not necessarily our fault we're just a result of this education structure um, because Mm. that was what those people at that point in time thought was going to be the most useful thing for everybody else to know. But we're sort of how they weren't able to predict what's going to happen in 50 years or 40 years down down the track. And so we don't, like, um, have a pedagogy to be able to teach this. And so that leads into, like, occupational therapists. We don't have a framework to be able to tackle these these issues. And so we've got to create this framework.
0: I also think another thing that, What was interesting in in retrospect, I didn't really sort of, well, I was a kid, so I didn't really know at the time, but the way and the language that was used to describe Aboriginal people very much seemed to be what was convenient for whoever was writing it at the time. So, you know, if there was people that wanted that land all for themselves and the Aboriginal people were often described as savages and natives, it almost gave them permission to push these people off their, their land, their own land so that they could have it um, whereas, yeah, there was others that would refer to people as the Indigenous people and, you know, I've read things like they had interactions with them. I don't know how productive the interactions mm. were or how much effort was put into them but mm. the, the it's a very mixed and it, it depends on which part you're reading. Like the Western, the history books are very, they're, they're not consistent Mm-hmm. the 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 different different narratives for I'm assuming what would be the priorities of those European settlers.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, and so it's it's there's a uh, author uh, sorry historian who's based in America, Ibram X Kendi, and he wrote this fantastic book called "Stamped from the Beginning," and he talks about the um, way that racist ideas were created and so in that he he argues the fact that racist ideas and beliefs do not lead to oppression they result from it so um you create this idea and construct of race to be able to justify being able to take resources to be able to um not necessarily um do right by this other particular group group of people and so um i think i said in the um uh speech that the, the um, note that I did there was that there um, was this creation of this idea and construct of, of race and in that you had um, whiteness and you had mm-hmm. the opposite end of the spectrum blackness and so trying to basically create a structure in that you can um, uh, I guess potentially dehumanize people and um, um, Take resources, take land um, for um, your own wealth and, and 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 accrual, basically. And so you had these Western colonial powers um, back in the 14th, 15th, 16th, and um, 17th centuries. Um, uh doing doing um creating this process and trying out ideas and if those ideas didn't work um reinventing them and and creating new ideas and so in this book Ibram X. Kendi talks about this 14th Portuguese chronicler who was commissioned by um King Henry in in Portugal to go and do a surveying of um the not the country of Africa, or at that time in time, but the many different nations that created up Africa, and so he um, uh, sent him to sort of go and uh, um, see what resources we could we could um, um, uh, accrue or sorry acquire and bring back for the colonial powers, and so uh, when he when he went there he. Rationalized or justified his um, taking of, of other humans and stating that they, like quoting here, they live like beasts. They had no understanding of good, but only knew how to live in seal sloth. And so he's justifying um, this dehumanization of people mm. for own economic wealth. And then that wealth doesn't necessarily translate into the people living on the streets and. In those European countries, it translate into yeah. those powers and those few getting those resources. So um, in the sense, creating whiteness and the opposite end of the spectrum, blackness, for um, exploitation, basically. And so you've had this history and this structure, and by the time Australia was colonised, right, this was done like the Portuguese chronicle was sent out there back in the 14th century. And if you talk about 1776, when it's the first sort of period uh, boats were out in sydney sydney cove you've had a full couple of centuries to get really,
0: really yeah. about this process wow because one of the things i've often wondered is uh mike my, my background is in mental health and i often will talk mm. about stigma in mental health and how it relates mm. and how it can affect uh you know people who might need to seek help for mental health but sometimes don't because of the stigma mm. etc yep but looking at how that stigma developed um very much started anyway way back when you know mental health care started and hmm. slightly different because this is kind of well documented the kinds of things that they used to do to people uh in mental health but that sort of gave rise to you know hollywood movies and their mm-hmm. depiction of mental health and that's how it sort of that's something that happened you know 200 years ago has kind of been continuously perpetuated mm. to the general public mm. as this is this is what mental health looks like do you think and obviously that's like a, a true rendition that's been carried through and but this is a a, a one-sided view of history a one-sided mm. perspective of history absolutely does it does it work do you think it works like I guess, similarly to that stigma developing in that Mm. this this one side of your history has then, you know, obviously been integrated into the education system and then it mm. goes right through, right through to where we are now as OTs and the models that have been developed and, you know, people that yeah. are developing these models may have had that education yeah. of, you know, our history or their history, whichever country they're in, yep, that kind yep. of thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So it, it created this um, uh, sh- structure that sort of, um, was founded upon on this particular view of, of history. And so that structure is going to be based on those particular values, right? And so if you're teaching about this particular thing, then and if you're hearing about these particular things and the things that are created in that society are going to be reflective of that. And so, like, institutions, your organisations, your professions, your schools, your doctors, your um, police, your justice system, and stuff like that is all going to be under that. And so that's what, like, when people talk about, like, um, what is and who is Australia, it's not necessarily talking about the historical context and injustice about it. It's about trying to support and further um sustain those structures that benefit a few but don't necessarily benefit everybody and so that concept of like when Australia was discovered the justifications was that it was terra nullius the Mm. legal definitions of no one's one's land land. and so you've got this three sort of operating um, branches of this and um, uh, everyone extended talks about it is it's the um it's science it's the states and it's religion And so trying to use the justification of religion or to do some not-so-nice things in the state and and have sciences back it up. And so you've got creations of racist sciences. You've got the state creating legal uh, things to enforce the enslavement of other people and the dispossession of other people. And so in our constitution... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people weren't included in that, and so our constitution is a founding document. So we weren't necessarily included in that. So we weren't included in the, who the system and structure is going to benefit for. And you look at the history of the White Australia policy and how um, in Australia it was to um, make sure that the socially dominant group was going to be Western European um, uh, people or western european migrants that upheld those particular values that upheld the church that upheld the state that upheld those scientists their scientists beliefs and so essentially it was a country that was founded on the supremacy of one particular group and not necessarily included um, everybody everybody else so it, it's all it it, it um, impacts upon like our, our family, our friends, our churches, our sports groups, stuff we see in the news, the stuff we see um, reading books, the stuff in television uh, and music, right? So that's our socialisation. So it's not necessarily one that we are uh, agreed <laughs> when we were born that that we are going to partake and participate in it, right? But it it's regardless that's the facts that we are living in that particular society, and it doesn't necessarily
0: benefit all of us. Uh, I think part of Australian history that a lot of people not necessarily forget but probably ignore was I think it was, was it the late, up until the late 60s, the Aboriginal people were... Not even like legally in yep. legal documents, yep. not recognised yes. as people. They they yep. came under a flora and fauna yep. act
2: 19, 19, in 1969. 1969, and so there's 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 quite a few conversations about is that actually stated anywhere, or is that well, mm. the point is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people weren't included in the constitution, so therefore we had no rights and no legal standing. Mm. We basically didn't necessarily exist, so if we weren't necessarily the flora and fauna. Um, we weren't necessarily those. We weren't necessarily included in, in society, so mm. I, I know there is a bit of conflicting views and narratives about that. So the date was nineteen sixty nine, and that was in a referendum that was held in Australia. It was one of the few referendums where I think over ninety percent of Australians voted to include Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, as uh, a part of a part of um, the citizenship.
0: Mm. Mm. Because I think that, like, 1969, that's not long ago. Like most people who are listening, like your parents yeah. were probably My parents
2: were born in 1964. Around.
0: So yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not that long so, ago. Like, so when, had... we, when we look at <laughs> stigma and that kind of stuff carrying across mm. for long periods of time, like yeah. this is there, are, there are people you can go and talk to right talk to. now that were probably I voted are, in that I referendum, in that referendum that were alive in that time. Yeah, and so it's really not long ago. Not long ago at
2: all, and so if you think about like the time that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had a part to be a part of Australian society, it's only a few decades. Hmm. And so the permeation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across all sort of aspects and spectrums of life is still ongoing. So... um, it, it's only gonna it's only going to continue to grow and so it's a it's a fantastic opportunity there um, as we're growing within multiculturalism and we're getting much more people coming into the country than we do have people being born in this country it's stuff that we should we should um, have conversations about and, and unpack and, and work with. 1967
0: or oh, 1969 mm-hmm. sorry obviously that's that's after. I guess OT rolled out in mm-hmm. Australia. Yep. So a yeah. lot of our profession in Australia the the I guess the founding documents those sorts of things where the profession was I guess more formalized in Australia happened before be, yep. Aboriginal people were recognized yeah. legally yeah. as yeah. citizens.
2: Yeah. Exactly, and so you think, you, you think about... Do you see that as having an effect? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So if you think about what would have been, if we're talking about like the education, if we're talking about the, it's embedded in our complete socialisation, as we're going up in our entire way of operating, right? Obviously, that's going to have an effect. And um, so what were those people uh, talking about, having conversations about, who were included in those conversations, who were not included in those conversations, when that was created? And so if you think about the fact that like our... Um, profession of occupational therapy was created as a response to um, some of the, what we now understand as post-traumatic stress um, from war, basically, and if Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people weren't necessarily, um, sorry, were and have participated in every single Australian conflict throughout um, the creation of this country, then Mm. we could have been serving and could have been helping those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to start the healing process, to start the healing journey. And so that post-traumatic stress that would have these um, men and women who would have came back with, we probably, due to the societal structure at that time, didn't provide that service to those men and women. And so you've got post-traumatic stress mm. sort of carrying on and you've got intergenerational trauma, which we have evidence evidence on now. And so, yeah, yeah. not only in our creation of our, our um, uh, profession, but also in the way that who are we were servicing, who are we were not servicing at that point in time. And there, there may have been people that were um, trying to um, help these Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at that point in time, but societal structure then probably wouldn't enable them to be able to do that as best as they wanted to.
0: Yeah, it would have been probably not not resourced at all, if if mm-hmm. very limited or. Mm-hmm. And there mm-hmm. wouldn't have been a whole lot of support, I would imagine.
2: Yeah. Yep, yep, exactly. And so it's not just necessarily go, oh, look at this point in time and yeah, yeah this. Um, throughout history, you've always got examples of people that fought against this um, sense of injustice. And so it's not enough to sort of go, oh, that was just reflective of their, um, that point in time and the societal mm-hmm. values. There's always examples of people that were there at that time saying, no, this is not right and throughout history you can always pull out these individuals so um, we can't necessarily justify it as oh yeah that was just that point in time it's like yeah, yeah
0: no, no. <laughs> and it's often only in hindsight then mm-hmm. sort of i guess after a major change has happened that mm. then those people are actually yeah i guess properly recognised for, for what they did mm,
2: exactly
0: mm. yeah i was going to ask Jody so Jody you've you've worked a lot uh, with Indigenous communities throughout your career, have you seen or do you do you recognise, uh, I guess, where some of these differences maybe in how health services are delivered or how they've been designed to be delivered uh, to Indigenous communities? Yeah,
1: absolutely, Brock. And I suppose just to um, I suppose preface anything is that. I have learned a hell of a lot more about myself than I have about other groups of people in, in working in that space. Um, so, I suppose I worked for 10 years in an Aboriginal and Torres Islander, um, health program, which was government funded and um, had the opportunity to travel to um, lots of remote communities, which was an absolute privilege. And, um, and seeing how health services differ and, and not just geographically, I think that that's a really important point is it's not just about um, a community's remoteness that can prevent service accessibility. It's also that services even in in big regional centers and in the cities can be inaccessible because of the ongoing impacts of colonization so whether people might have had experiences in going to the health service where they don't feel like their culture is valued they don't they don't see their culture as a strength in in being able to first find the right service for them and then be able to feel comfy and, and comfortable um, in going to a particular service. So, um, yes, definitely there are, you know, in, in seeing it across a lot of different um, towns and, and cities that, you know, people, Aboriginal and Torres people in our country don't have the same access to uh, the government services because of a whole range of um of issues which have been well researched but also um, it's sort of it has a structural overarching um, impact that will take a lot longer to resolve but also there are individuals within those health services who either serve to really um, provide the most culturally responsive services that they can at that point in time within the system that they work within, but there are also people within those services who um, haven't thought about how they might provide services differently or better to someone who comes from a different cultural background to them if they're part of a socially dominant culture.
0: The so in Australia we we have a, a program uh, called Closing the Gap, and I know Terripa has uh, views on the name of it because I remember him talking about it in Sydney. But we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> but I guess the the I guess what I see as the positives of that program is that there are health discrepancies between western population and an indigenous population that this program is for better or worse however it's designed trying to adjust for do you think so for, for me i guess what i'm trying to say is for me that's almost a, a very sort of compensatory model of of health in that oh mm-hmm. this is this team's lower than this team so we'll put more resource into it again, probably not done as well as it could be to try and bring them up to where this team is. Mm-hmm. That assumption that this team is right mm. and that this is the measure of success yeah. that we need to get everyone up to, whether Indigenous or wh- whoever. Yeah. yeah. That, to me, in reflection after your presentation in Sydney seemed very much like um, part of that colonised mm. thinking. I guess they're <laughs> almost like we're right, and everyone needs to get to here. I was going to throw to Jody first. Is that in the health services that you've worked in? Does that is that the way that that program is? I guess seen by the people that you're working with, or are they? How how is that taken by them?
1: As in the closing the gap program? Yeah. Um.
0: I guess I guess what I'm thinking, like my my perception now of. The Like this is where the, the goalposts are put and we have to try and get everyone to there. Is it viewed like that within the communities?
1: Uh, I don't know that on the ground that um, the community members that I spoke with who are engaging with health services really would be thinking a lot about mm. the close the gap program, um, mm. and that's not to say that, as you said, it doesn't have value in that. You know, there's obviously mm. some really important aspects of that, provided that the leadership is, is, um, is representative of the people that the program's informing. So, uh, yeah, on the ground, I don't really remember lots of community members talking to me about closing the gap and and the. The nuances of, of that program. I suppose what people would talk to me about is, um, uh, who are you? <laughs> Where are you from? <laughs> what are you doing here? Taking the time to, to build authentic relationships and trust with people, um, going back and going back again and going back again. And I think that that was, that was probably what the The word on the street was more about if you're a if you're not from this community, whether you were um, a white Australian, someone else, or or even a person, an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander person from another community, taking the time to authentically build relationships and um, and build trust, and and do that alongside the people that we were working with, um, and and really listening to what the needs of the community were so as an occupational therapist trying to not go in there um, as you know I'm I'm Jody and, and I'm an occupational therapist I was really I was just Jody, and my planning would be through the lens of an occupational therapist my delivery would be through therapeutic yourself use of self as an occupational therapist but and then I would reflect as an OT but the importance to the people on the ground was that that I was Jody. I was listening. I was learning, and I was responding. Um, so, in terms of the bigger, overarching frameworks like close the gap or right. closing the gap, so and and again, there's you know differences in in what those terminologies mean in different states of Australia. So, yeah, I can't really go into into detail so, about. Yeah, closing the gap because it, it didn't really come into um, the conversations that I had with people on the ground.
0: So I guess what, what, it, what that sounds like to me is from a systemic point of view we're trying to deliver two different levels of healthcare to bring everyone to the same level but what you've just described I would do with any community that I was going into. Like it doesn't sound like you were doing anything Maybe, you know, time-wise it might take a little bit longer in some communities than others, but building genuine relationships and listening to the people and using your therapeutic use of self is something that sounds like you would do with anyone, no matter who you work.
1: It sounds like something people should be doing with everyone <laughs> they work with, yes. <laughs> um, however, our westernised thinking about what goals should look like, what um what mode or um therapeutic delivery that you are going to use is all very much framed by our own um cultural lens and Mm -hmm. i suppose that um sometimes we don't realise the inherent biases that we are coming with. So, even if you you are authentically trying to be listen and, and trying to be listened, trying to be present and to listen to the people that you're working with, you will still be filtering what you're hearing through a lens that, for me, belongs and is situated in a white middle-class upbringing. And so, being able to listen and um, and understand without judgment to things that might be really surprising about different ways that people um, parent or different ways that children grow up in a community, uh, just, just differences and not, neither is right or wrong but just understanding my own perspectives in that and what to do with those perspectives and to sometimes be honest in in saying, oh, that's different to you know mm-hmm. to the way I grew up. Can you explain mm-hmm. that a little bit more so that there's a, a sense of um, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on your child. I'm not an expert on mm-hmm. your community by any stretch of the imagination. I'm an expert of myself, and if we can have a conversation about those, then we can get to a point of working together and and trying to address the inherent power imbalances that Mm. come with not only being a therapist but, for me, being a white therapist going into a community that has had potentially decades and decades of other white people come in and Mm. try and not work alongside but work to yeah. Or upon a group of yeah. people and i think that um, I certainly when i started i didn't realize the level of unpacking that i would have to do and continue to do to be able to try and you know and and provide those um, client centered services and hmm consider you know what occupation and what occupational therapy means in communities that might not be familiar with OTS and and also as um, Ter Powell alluded to earlier and I'm not sure if that's going to be part of this conversation but around what does the you know what some of the um, the language of our profession, Obviously, mm. belongs to or has been developed by um, a certain group of people, namely those in the socially dominant culture. So, what? How do I need to be mindful of the language that I use? Not only in terms of some communities where English won't be the first language, but also in the language that um, of our profession that inherently biases, um, you know, a socially dominant culture.
2: Mm. So, just jumping in there, right, Jody? Um, um, we're talking about this process of um, having to critically reflect, and so because we created um, this society that that has this um, mentioned sort of um, racial hierarchy and structure, right, as well as all the gender construction hierarchy structures and stuff like that, we we don't necessarily name these things. And so we don't then – we fall under the assumption that everybody is just like us and we're just this one big homogenous group. And so, therefore, what works for me will work for you. So – and that's where our biases is coming coming into play. And we all have biases, just like it's just a part of being being human. But the way that we enforce inequity is then when we enforce that this um, false narrative of being uh, – um just like everybody else and and then we um further um uh try and enact these things that are going to be um that we think is going to be useful for this group of people over here and so what we're doing there is just creating further further barriers we're not removing any of these barriers um we're going to be much less motivated to move them because we don't understand why and so mm-hmm. Um, and we feel entitled to, like, oh, why isn't this working? Well, this must be working because it's a problem with those people over there. Yeah. It's like, well, no, we, we need to go back and reflect on critically why we make the decisions that we make, um, why we go about doing the things that, that we do. And like you said earlier about, like, um, setting goals, or what we think is setting goals might not necessarily be what, what a other person person thinks. And because we've raised and socialised to be unconscious of whiteness, and even to acknowledge whiteness as a structure that, like, is makes you feel uncomfortable because it's, oh, well, um, I'm, I've never necessarily done this before. I haven't individually thought um, that I could, um, that I have perpetrated um, uh, racist systems and that's what like um, robin d'angelo in her new book um uh white um, fragility and why conversations about whiteness is so difficult for the social dominant group of whiteness in this country right is because we have this narrative that racism is a, only an individual intentional act committed by people who are unkind and so mm. it, that's that's not the case, <laughs> mm. due to the history and the structure of socialisation and how we create all this all this society in which we live in. Um, it's going to be embedded in through all of it, but the opportunity there and, and the the freeing part is that if we think of it in terms of uh, a structure and a system, then we can do something about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. And and I think Tirupa when I first sort of started to try and reflect on my own culture, being part of a socially dominant culture, the only the I could only get to reflecting on my family and mm-hmm. how I was brought up and you know what, you know, that I, you know, sat within a very nuclear middle class, you know, family. And and so my initial um approach was just in, in reflecting and understanding that families are different and it okay. took me a long time to be able mm. to despite the fact that it had been very um, very eloquently written about in a number of Ot articles mm. by our friend dr. Allison Nelson mm-hmm. but I, I just don't think that I was um, I was ready or that I um, I'm not about being ready, but I just probably didn't understand the complexities that I was having to try and unpack around mm. the, the structures and the systems that were developed by and for a socially dominant culture, and that, and and I know that often you know, people will be like, oh, you know, it's either I I feel guilty or. It's, it wasn't my fault because you know mm. I didn't I didn't mm. make those policies <laughs> yeah. and processes, but when uh, when you have been part of a, a group of people who have benefited from the um, benefited from what's happened to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in this country by ways that the systems and processes and structures have been set up for people like you, people like myself. Uh, that's that's trickier stuff to to begin to um, to reflect on and and I think not only um, not only reflect on but then figure out well what what can I do what what's within my power and influence to be mm. able to start mm-hmm. to write a new narrative forward mm-hmm. so that these structures these services these processes begin to Acknowledge the strengths and resilience of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, Mm -hmm. and to be able to include them in, in, in not only um, service provision but obviously service delivery, um, Mm -hmm. but also in being able to establish well, what, what, what do we want services and processes and to look like, and how can, how can I, um, you know, use what um, power influence I have to be able to to start to be part of writing that new narrative alongside and and sharing power with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people.
2: Mm, Absolutely, absolutely. I think there's a great point that you touched on there around that starting the the process and the journey and the the uncomfortability around it, right, and then by trying to do it from a point where you can see that similarity and so the stuff that Richard Delgado writes about around interest convergence that that we do have converge on this ideal of family. We, we share that. We share that as a family sort of, um, we say that as a potential medium to be able to unpack some of these issues. And what does a family structure look like? And what does mine look like in comparison to other people's families? And so trying to find those particular things on which you can sort of, um, uh, find a supporting relationship to be able to or supporting narrative to be able to go on that process and and on that journey um and it's a tricky thing to do when you haven't been taught that you need to go on this journey (laughs) and so and so like Naturally, there's going to be this because we're taught um, uh, uh, within a Western context that we are individuals, we um, um, subscribe to the idea of meritocracy. And so I have achieved what I achieved because of me, when that's not necessarily the case. You have achieved because, yes, you have some skill set, but you have been positioned in this point in time, these particular resources, with this particular background to be able to achieve these particular things. And so um, we think in this completely conflicting narrative, of how do I then go about that process of unpacking or readdressing those particular those particular things? And it's 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 tricky, but it's not a process that that cannot be done, and it's a process that is going to hopefully improve you not only as a, as a therapist or as a researcher or whatever whatever, but it's going to help you um, as an individual. And so we. Go on this process, and we go on this journey, and then we sort of need those external or those external factors to kind of help us go on that or continue that. Whether it's books, whether it's podcasts, whether it's people, whether it's it's um, whatever, because we we haven't been given this reflective mirror to say like, um, oh yeah, you look like this, or you've got a um, uh, particular thing like this, or whatever. And so we've got trying to create these checks and balances and balances for ourselves. So that process is tricky, but it's really important to sort of go on because it's kind of improved, like you said earlier, um, Jody, about your the service delivery or um, our, um, the practice or or whatever. Uh, it's it's a really important thing to even get to that point. And so, for a majority of Australian society, we're at this sort of um, um, place where we we either. Kind of get it, but we're not too sure about. Um, we so we're either on the other end of the spectrum, I'm just not getting it and um, explicitly shutting it down, uh, or we're at that place where we kind of get it, but we're not too sure how to move forward with it. It's kind of like the existential crisis of environmental. Impact that that we're living in today, right? It's just like Mm. yes, this is this big thing and it's important, but it's too big for us to unpack. We're we're not given the tool sets to be able to unpack things on a on a global level. It's just biologically we we haven't been created to do that. So we've got to create a structure to be able to do that. And so um, we get this existential crisis moment, and we don't know what to do. And so we're kind of generally at at, at that point and it's not until we go through and unpack and get those checks and balances and reflect critically that we're able to kind of oh here's some particular tools here's some particular savings here's some particular way that i can then put into how i'm going to go about doing it
0: i think that that pretty much perfectly describes where i feel i'm at (laughs) where i've now sort of the veil's been lifted Mm -hmm. and i can see that there's this issue and yes i don't fully understand it but i know it's there but i'm like okay now what like what do i do about it um and at the present i'm kind of i guess trying to feel out the edges of where the issue how wide the issue is within my own context Mm -hmm. so within my work and my family and my my own thinking Mm -hmm. and that kind of stuff uh and I've been reflecting, I did some in your workshop in Sydney and then obviously since then about times when it's been really obvious to me and it's mm. kind of trying to, I guess, work out what the times when it's been really obvious what I could have done differently or how I could have viewed that situation differently. Mm. And I think one of the, the really oh, probably game-changing thought experiments, I guess, Um was I was talking with uh, Michael Awama and it was in his workshop when he was here a few years ago. And one of the things that he said that I had never thought, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, but he was talking about how the concept of occupation itself doesn't exist in Aboriginal, uh, I guess, the the way Aboriginal people view the world because (laughs) – he described it as, in the Western culture, we have person, we have the environment, and occupation is essentially what happens when those two things are interacting with each other, whereas Aboriginal people see or don't separate person from the environment. Like everything's intermelded. Everything interacts with each yeah. other. There's no – essentially there's no space for that occupation to fit in there, and, yeah. I was, and that, I was like hey, – what do we do as an occupational therapist that <laughs> yeah, exactly. the concept well, itself doesn't exist? Yeah,
2: exactly. And, and so, so not necessarily talk on behalf of all Aboriginal people globally, right, or Indigenous mm. people globally, but just as a um, uh, the concept that knowledges operate differently between different groups. And so if we think that occupation is structured like this and another group and Indigenous people, for, for example, like think that it's much more melded and, and integrated. I don't know, personally here, yeah, um, for me, and just speaking on behalf of as an individual, Aboriginal person, the way that I will socialise, is that, yeah, I totally, totally believe that it's it's such more integrated and it's like a complete interconnected ecology sort of thing. And so this thing of this really rigid structure within our Western um, context of occupation is... Foreign concept, <laughs> and mm. so but so if you're trying to, you can't overlap that onto this other particular group because if you do that, it's not going to line because the concepts doesn't are fit. different.
0: Yeah, mm. square peg, round hole.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: So I think that was mm-hmm. that was one of the things because even our very most like absolute basic model mm. like the PEO doesn't doesn't that do that work. separates the different components mm. and
2: mm.
0: I yeah. guess that was a. A crisis in a way. I mean, it, it made me think about how, well, at the time it was a Kawa workshop, so yep. it made me think of how that could work a lot better than any of our mm. other sort of models and yeah. stuff with an in, in Indigenous community yeah. or Indigenous person. Yep.
2: It's a non Western model. Me, mm. yeah.
0: yeah. And it's not, I think, so fluid and so flexible. It can, mm. and I, I think it, no, it wasn't you, Jodie. Who was it? It might have been Alice. Gave an example of how she modified the mm-hmm. actual metaphor to be a football field instead mm-hmm. of a yep. river. Yep. I think it was. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. Yeah, I've never. I've little never little
1: done living. it as a football field. I've definitely done it, done it as a very interactive river with groups of. Um, yeah, with groups of educators. So. Yeah,
0: but, yeah, but no, no, I not just a football remember. Field. The, you, I think it might have been Alice, or maybe it was just an example that Michael brought up, where they essentially the same constructs, but yep. they designed it as a football field. So. You know the opposition players were the Brocks and then mm-hmm. your players mm-hmm. were the the logs, etc. etc. Oh, nice because yeah. <laughs> because um, football was something that that community, whichever community it was that they were working in, related to like really well. So it was mm-hmm. you know adjusting yep. for that. Yeah, yeah. But I think most of our other models don't have that. Yeah, but fluidity.
2: Brock, that's a fantastic example of like how you then shift. So you're not necessarily putting this one Western structure over this other structure sort of stuff and hoping mm. it aligns perfectly you're then shifting and moving that model then to fit those individuals and that, that those people that is going to going of affect right so like you like you're sorry i'm jumping in a bit too early but i, I think you are going to talk about how other models don't necessarily do that was that yep i'm getting some nods so yep <laughs> so then that's around that process and there's 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 a small percentage, but if you think about percentage-wise, it's still going to be uh, uh, a decent uh, enough population of Indigenous OTs that are the knowledge holders and the, the, the potential leaders there to be able to create these models. And I've done various forms and iterations of that throughout my throughout my career to create new models or different structures or different ways of, of doing service delivery, that is, that is, and so the um, theoretical concept of decolonization, for example. And so decolonizing a particular model, decolonizing an organizational structure, decolonization the way that a service service is done, or decolonizing individual sort of stuff. So trying then to unpack or undo some of that um, uh, colonization process and then how can we then operate and create either use some things that have previously worked well or create some new things that that we know might potentially work well um, so going through that process for our own um therapy or practice or research or, or whatever um, but the way that i guess from a generating and uh, like academically these new um, theories and concepts is going to take uh, uh, a process and time. But mm. if if we have, if those institutions are operating on this sort of, well, these um, Western um, structures are fine and there's nothing we should do about them, mm. then that knowledge isn't going to get created. Yeah, so you yeah. can't even create the knowledge unless you're going to go through and unpack some of those previous, previous things.
0: And I think, The uh, And again, correct me if I'm wrong. I think that in the last, I don't know, let's say 10 years, there's been some Mm. advancement. But Mm -hmm. in reflection on, say, the different trainings and stuff that I've done throughout my career, I still can't help but feel that a lot of it is almost tokenistic. Mm. So in, say, the health system that I previously worked in, there was, I can't even remember what they call it, cultural awareness mm-hmm. or cultural safety, so call yep. some sort of cultural training. Yep. But then in mental health, when I'm working in an acute unit, some of the, the cultural differences that I, I still haven't got my head around, mm. yeah. it was almost as if uh, the cultural differences were used as almost like a, a, a an excuse or a pass mm. for different things so for example i'll give an example because that probably wasn't the best way of explaining it so we see someone on an acute mental health board they may have a diagnosis of schizophrenia we see you know they're seeing things they're hearing auditory hallucinations etc but uh in a lot of the time when it was an indigenous person or an aboriginal person maybe experiencing exactly the same symptoms as someone else instead of we need to treat this, we need to work with this person, we need to blah blah blah. It's that's a cultural thing. Ah, Essentially just yep. we, we yep. let it we let mm-hmm. it ride kind of thing. Mm. And we just hope it plays out. Or yeah. or yeah. there there were uh I can't remember what they call them. I think they were called cultural healers, I think they used yep. to call them. Yep. Um that mm-hmm. were brought into uh, essentially treat it in yep. a more traditional way. So, yep. for example, one of the things, and we used to have Indigenous health workers that I used to ask a lot of questions to, because they probably they probably thought I was really annoying, but I was just really curious. <laughs> but but they were, why, nice, they were, <laughs> nice. They were <laughs>
2: nice, they were polite. Oh, yeah, they, they were always very polite.
0: Um, but one of the things was I remember working with a lady, no, it was, a, sorry, a bloke, who used to have a visual hallucination of, and I I think from memory it was called the tall man? Mm-hmm. Um, and the indigenous worker explained to me that this hallucination was something that would appear to people from that from that guy's community yep. when done something wrong to the family. So yeah. the only way to get rid of that particular hallucination was to essentially uh, mediate yep. that that thing, whatever it yep. happened.
2: So the hallucinations were happening within the cultural context of that person's experiences.
0: Yeah, 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 yep. yeah. So I. That kind of had always confused me. Like I understood that, mm. but it more confused me about my own culture. Yeah, I'm like, so different. They, you, you've got this really in-depth understanding of exactly what that hallucination is mm. and how to deal with it mm. without pumping people full of medication and yeah, all that. so different. And then here's us like, ooh, that's bad, let's get rid of it yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, So In but, our own culture. It, it made me question what, what we do because yeah. I'm like you guys have uh, – Indigenous people have this – much mm. better understanding mm. about what's going on and how to deal with it. Yeah,
2: so there's a, there's a few things that, that, that come to mind there and that's how um, one of them is around uh, sciences and the supremacy of Western sciences, right? And so Western sciences being the one true science that um, is mm. tried in quotation marks here, tried, tested and accurate. And it's not necessarily true. There's there's many different knowledges that have generated their own iterations of Science basically. There's there's many different cultures that have that. And so if you think about when Western history of sciences, when um in European um medieval times when they were coming to terms with diseases and what are the biological functions and what are this in um uh, across um down in Middle Eastern society, they were treating mental health. And so, and then you've got Aztec society there that were that were um, treating um, uh, for uh, public health um, <laughs> concerns of, of entire civilizations, right? And so, Western sciences isn't the one supreme science. It is a science, and it's a very useful and practical science, but it isn't the only one. And so, that sort of narrative, um, sort of, where due to um, the structure and whiteness were taught as, oh, that's not the one true thing or that's not, oh, well, that that's not a thing. Um, and there was also talking about, um, uh, I guess, the differences between tokenism. And so when, when instances are tokenistic, it is because there's nothing grounded underneath. It's just purely mm-hmm. just a symbolic gesture sort of stuff. It's purely just at this abstract um, level. And it's not until... Um, so it becomes tokenistic. It's not until it's true symbolism is, when it is backed up with action, there's a, there's, there's an underground process. There's a um, um, uh, there's you can see um, uh, uh, I guess a process of, of of an outcome. And so that's not to say that this particular cultural awareness training didn't necessarily meet that meet that needs. Um, but cultural awareness um, training is is a spectrum. And so. Mm because we're at that pre-cultural level now where we're sort of, what do we do about it and how how do we approach it? Um, It's, and the only thing you know, I guess, is the interest convergence sort of stuff that I was talking about earlier. So what is it with the... the reality of which i'm dealing with, and so for the mental health sort of stuff was was yours and so if you're teaching a cultural awareness level sort of stuff at uh well here's the history and here's this it's not going to help you to do your um uh um service delivery stuff and mental health right now all it is is just the foundations all it is is just this like oh well here's so you know here's so you know some of some of that and so because it's on a spectrum you've got cultural awareness you've got how do i get the knowledges how do i then put those knowledges into practice and and how do i create a system then that has all of these things all across on a micro level and a macro level and so because we're teaching cultural awareness to try to unpack the history of whiteness and, and its structure obviously we're not going to get to the how you how you do it how you do it right here right now And so this is the thing that when people go to cultural awareness, they're not necessarily, because they don't have a background or a reference to sort of put it in, their their expectations might not necessarily be met. They might be, oh, I don't have no expectations or I don't want to know how to do this or want to know how to do this. When we're teaching cultural awareness on a level where it's just, let's just put a reflective lens upon this historical structure Um, and we're just there at that level, you're going to need an ongoing structure to be able to be able to get to that point in the mental health board and, and treating treating these individuals.
0: And I, I think that's exactly the, I think you've just nailed exactly what was happening in those in those trainings is people were coming in with that expectation of this is gonna help me uh you know engage better with people from Aboriginal culture and that kind of thing. And a lot of it was uh around, you know, this I guess alternative to the westernized view of the history and it did provide that but didn't I think the the, the issue is the difference between the expectations of the <laughs> clinicians going into that training and then you know what the training I think even if it was framed that you know, this is a you know the intro course kind of thing, mm-hmm. and yep. like this is the base level knowledge yep. that we're going to then build yep. on. That even just that would help yeah, framing totally. it like that, totally. Because I think what what ends up happening is, or what in my experience, and probably I'm definitely guilty of thinking like this, is it almost the the training essentially provides you with enough information to realise that, or realise why indigenous. People aren't going to engage in your system, but that does yeah. it. That's all it yeah. does. Really. So
2: it 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 paints the background of the picture, yeah. But it doesn't paint the colors colors of the picture, and yep. and it's 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 not necessarily structured and designed to to do that. And mm. so and that's where the expectations sort of sort of um, differ, or the expectations that don't necessarily necessarily get met. And so it is designed to put a reflective um, lens, and so trying then to, uh, uh, you need to then go do further training. And So I do, um, in the very little free time that I actually have, I do a <laughs> training called uh, cultural responsiveness, and so it's operating more on that end of... How do you? Uh, so I don't necessarily teach about the historical structures and stuff like that because that's going to be your, it's your first year of university. I'm mm. teaching your fourth year of university, and so I'm you have needed to probably go through, like, do your first year, do your second year, do your third year, and then get up to get up to this. And so i I quite open and honest and, and advertise it as that that we are talking about. I expect that there is going to be understanding of those things. So I expect you to have a foundation. And so I want to be able to continue to build that foundation and I want to put some mm. stuff back. So I don't necessarily talk about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, history and stuff like that, because I expect that to people to already know that. But I want to have to have conversations and I want to have that um, um, uh, further people's thinking is on themselves. So if you've got that information and you've got that knowledge of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, might have um, um, uh, might access services like that, then how can I get you to think how you're going to get your service to be able to meet those people at that point at that point in time? And so I think there is this um, thought process for a lot of um, uh, not just occupational therapists, but for a lot of people doing these trainings that is going to be the be all and end all answer. And it's not. It's just your first year. <laughs> it's just your first year of university. It's nope. not your fourth year. But yeah, you yep. have to get to to that process. Yeah. Jodie, did you?
1: Yeah. yeah, no, I was just probably going to add on to that because mm. Tirupar and I yarn a lot. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, I've also been to those um, government trainings. and And absolutely, like when I first started, I went to that you know, went to that cultural awareness training and walked out and went, how have I been an OT for this many years, having been through school, high school and then university, how is this just the first time that I'm, you know, um, learning and understanding the impacts of colonisation on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's health and wellbeing. Mm. Um, and I know that there are shifting sands, particularly, you know, it's really nice that I see... Um, You know, in my kids' daycare centre, that they are engaging and partnering with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander consultants to look at how they can support little people's development of understanding um, the strengths and resiliencies, and all and celebrating Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and acknowledging the first people of our country. And and so there's that's really excellent. But as a as an OT, who I'm not, you know, I'm not a dinosaur i'm not too old um you know i
0: graduated, <laughs> graduated you're the like, only one that says that hey no one else thinks that it's i like don't you. know
1: but I, I think that you know it, it, that frame. i mean people can't see how young and vibrant i look it's a podcast but i think that you know i i graduated within the last oh, like within the last 15 years and yet that learning for me has all happened in the last 10, 10, Mm. 11 years and so my, you know, my experiences in school and in tertiary education didn't allow me to start this journey Um, through with scaffolding and support that hopefully, um, particularly with the new occupational therapy competency standards that the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander network had input into to really ensure that aspects around Australia's first people and culturally responsive practice are embedded in what we must, not what we should have been but what we Mm -hmm. must um, be enabling our future therapists with so you know again that that onward narrative is is hopefully looking more positive with the universities partner well with the people that they should be partnering with mm. to ensure that that happens. Yeah. That aside,
2: that's a whole other process, yep. <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and but I think from an individual level, going to those, you know, going to those government cultural awareness trainings um, and Tirupar and I talk a lot about the heavy lifting that one mm-hmm. has to do and often mm-hmm. because growing up as a socially dominant culture... You, if you go, like, oh, I need to learn more about this, then everyone looks towards the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to do mm. that work for mm. them. But what people don't want to put sometimes or don't understand that they need to put the effort into is that incredible self-reflection that you need to do to understand your positioning within the communities that you're working with. And so, as as Tia said, that that you know those cultural awareness trainings are the foundation. They're like your first year, and then as you track onwards with that, it's not only about learning about um, the you know what's happening or what's occurred or what continues to happen with a different group of people. It's also about going inwards and continuing to understand yourself in that space and being willing and open to listen and learn and be a non-expert. And that's, Uh, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't stop. I think like, you know, like we often tell our students that reflective practice doesn't stop. It just escalates once you graduate. I think that Mm. that is is also the case. So that when you look at, well, what can I do with this information that I got at cultural awareness training, by doing some self-reflection, you might reflect on your own, um, your own OT education, what was in there, what wasn't in there. You might look at, do yeah, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people access the service that I'm working in? If not, why not? What might be some of those systemic barriers when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people come to my service? What works for them? Have I asked them? <laughs> um, what doesn't work for them? What about this service isn't you know isn't happening? And when we consider the social determinants of health that often impact on Aboriginal and Torres people, how can me as an OT in this particular space consider what are some of the social determinants of health that are impacting on people's access to this health service, you know? Is there things around transport that are really tricky? Is it that, you know, that their family obligations um, might put their own health last on the pecking order because they have to you know um look after their own kids or, or potential extended family um that that sort of lack of egocentricity that um that is such a strength that families wrap around each other might not be part of my you know my family story so they considering what are those other social determinants that really um could be impacting on people either accessing in the first place or continuing or having ongoing contact with a with a service and and how you can ask Aboriginal and Toshana people about that.
2: There's a really good point there, Jody, that you're talking about around that um, turning the lens or the gaze inwards. And it's so difficult to do that isn't just as um just as a person um that is a part of social economic non- group but just even just as all individuals like talking about and uh, ourselves is a difficult is a difficult thing to do and so we don't necessarily have the deeper level lens that's needed to be able to think about some of these issues and some of these some of these problems because we weren't provided that in our socialization growing up and that can bring up the defensive barriers that, like, all oh, this heavy lifting is hard, and so <laughs> oh, it's not making me feel feel good, or, or, uh, or whatever. And so this this wall comes up, and people just like, no, no, I'm just happy in this little space that I have for myself, sort of stuff. And then the work doesn't necessarily get done. And so those barriers are normal to 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 sort of come up, but those barriers need to be. Why is that barrier coming up? Why am I thinking that that's uncomfortable? Why do, why do I feel like this? Because it's not until you turn that lens inwards and think about that that you're going to think, well, that was due to my socialization for this or that was due to um, oh I haven't experienced these things before. Why well, haven't experienced these things before? Well, I grew up in this particular area, and I didn't necessarily have to think about these things. It wasn't necessarily it was a um, socially homogenous area, and so like, and segregation happens. It happens here in Australia, and so it's um, it's just done by postcode. So, <laughs> um, um, so it it um, you might not necessarily have had conversations with people that looked and differently from you, and it's not until like people like. Um, Within the Western context, go and do their um, uh, gap year per se, or, and they get this like they might get this um, um, uh, culture shock, and that culture shock is only there because you haven't built up the stamina to be able to look at the other different um, culture that um, sorry different in quotation marks that different culture that then makes you think about your own culture because your own culture is just thought of as mm. quotation marks normal. So looking inwards and doing that, you haven't been given given these tools. And so there's a fantastic thing that I heard from an elder that talks about like um doing this work is like going to the gym. And you go to the gym and you pick up a weight and it might be heavy. (laughs) But if you keep picking up that weight, it's gonna it's gonna get um easier and easier, it's gonna get stronger and stronger sort of thing. So you haven't been taught the skills, but you need to be able to develop. So you haven't been those muscles are asleep.
0: but you need to yeah. develop
2: and strengthen, strengthen those muscles.
0: Need to train that reflective muscle.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep, that reflective muscle. You better keep training it.
0: <laughs> I think one of one of the things that I, I'm quite curious about is I guess what what you and this is going to be completely opinion but what you think the end goal should be because at the moment I feel as if a lot of services such as closing the gap and that kind of stuff are almost uh, in addition to the health service that we're you know so intent on keeping as is do you think that it's a matter of I guess adding all these extra services and different services or is it is it possible for us to, say, in the ideal world, scrap what we've got and develop a health service that doesn't have those, I guess, systemic barriers for certain populations and can be applied, similar, similar, I guess, to, say, the Kawa model versus any of our other models, doesn't have that that barrier and you can apply it to anyone. It's not an Indigenous model. It's not, you know, a service just for Indigenous people to, you know try and make sure that they get equal uh, access to the health services that our Western model gives to Western people. Um, But a model that's
2: going to be beneficial for um, everyone.
0: Yeah. So do you think that's possible?
2: Um, I'm always – I I structure myself like uh, in this sort of narrative, and a bit of it is – because it's helpful for me to be able to do the work just personally. But I think of be critical for the now, be hopeful for, for the future. And so the um uh, I think it's always having that ideal world there, and this is what we should aim for. But mm-hmm. um that that's just that's just a fantastic way to think in the fact that like, well, now we need to think about the processes to be able to get there and what's gonna lead us to that point. And mm-hmm. I'm 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 conscious that like. We, Because we haven't been shown this, um, the easiest thing to do is to go, just tell me the answer. Just tell me the thing to do. Just yeah. tell me how to do it and I'll do it. And that in there, like, it, it then stops the work from being done and people from going going on that process because then that just says, like, um, the barriers just disappear. All of this stuff disappears. I don't necessarily have to think about that. I can just think about the end outcome. But to get to that end outcome, you need to do the work. And so there's so many students, and, and I get this from other OTs, one of our conferences, and just people when I have conversations, is tell me what to do. But it's not about telling you what to do; it's telling you that you need to go and do. It. <laughs> and so you need to go and do the self reflective stuff. You need to go and do this stuff. So yes, keep the perfect world in mind. Keep the ideal thing of like yes, we're going to create this that's going to be beneficial to everybody, except you know, rather than just a few. But start the process of getting there. Jodie, did you want to? just a good proper important that you can have
1: there? No. Um, no, I think that, yeah, reiterating the point of do the work. Um, <laughs> but I think also that, you know, within within health services that there are um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander medical services and, and mm-hmm. um, primary health services, which for um, some spaces include allied health services. So considering where you're positioned, um... <laughs> And probably geographically within a service, mm-hmm. but also within um, your own cultural identity. Mm-hmm. But uh, thinking about um, you know what are potential partnerships. So you know mm-hmm. if yeah we want to keep in mind that there you know let's let's continue to build hope for an amazing inclusive mm-hmm. health future, but. Uh, for the here and now is are there partners within the communities that you sit within mm-hmm. that you can work alongside with to improve the current services that you're providing or that your organisation is providing and, and reaching out to um, People who are potentially better engaged with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities or the First Nations communities that you um, that you're providing services for, and um, yeah, exploring what those partnerships could look like, which will help you to continue to do the work that you need to do in that self-reflection space, but also to pro- provide um, potentially and hopefully more culturally responsive services along the way.
2: Mm-hmm. There's so many resources out there. There's so many books to read. There's so many um, um, papers and reports and and, um, things to be able to go through and read, go and read that and start that process. And I guess we're going into more the um, uh, pragmatic sort of of stuff. But but if you are reading that, really uh, it's going to be difficult to engage with content that you're not necessarily familiar with. And so, um, and so trying to, uh, I guess, build a foundation to be able to um, engage in that content is really, really, really important. So if you're trying to do um, biology, you don't just jump into biology. You've got to jump into mm-hmm. some of the basics, the periodic table. You've got to jump into some of this stuff before. And So yes, there are the resources out there, but you've got to try and create that process to be able to Go and, and and engage and engage in those resources. Um, and I think this is that like going back into the social, social um, aspect of it is we don't have have that have that process. Um, and being conscious of yes we've got this um, service that we want to do or yes we've got this research that we want to do, but that service is in an institution and that institution has a history. And so you're gonna you're doing this micro and macro thing at the same time.
0: Mm. So do you think as part of that it's it's important for people to actually I guess try and find because most people wouldn't know the history of their service that yeah. they work in. Absolutely. Do you think it's, that would be an important step yeah. for people to actually yeah. like like Absolutely. a starting point, I guess? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. What what's the institution? know where your mm.
0: service is actually yeah. situated? Yep.
2: Yeah. Yep, know where your profession's history is. Know where your um, mm. service is situated. Know what your institution was created from. Know the particular um, history of where the money, the funding comes from. Um, who created it. there a picture on the wall of a of a um, um, older white gentleman on the wall? And so if you <laughs> if you go into various universities and you, you go through and see who the previous vice chancellors are who created or founded universities, who does that look like? What What?
0: Did that person come with when they created that? Mm. Yeah, definitely. Because I think that, that's probably for most people listening to this, it might be where's that starting point? Mm. And I think for me that starting point was a first finding, I guess, probably the most jarring part of everything and mm-hmm. that's where I started mm-hmm. and that was the concept of whiteness and mm-hmm. my, uh, you know, Even... Making excuses, but my unknowing role yeah, in yeah. perpetuating this I, this system, I, I, I and think that it, was the mm. jarring part that sort of kicked me off into like, oh yep. crap! Like, yep. what, How? How did? The, how did I let this happen? Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I've we, been we, there we, too, Brock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I realised, yeah, because we, we're taught to this as an individualistic society, mm. and so we we talk to, yes, me as an individual has this thing. Why? Why is this like this? But that's not necessarily necessarily the case. And Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a critical race theorist, and um, and has this fantastic um, TED talk that talks about this around intersectionality. And so we as individuals don't just come with one sort of blank identity. We come with the multiple mm. you're a multiple of identities. You're a male, you're a female, you're a parent, you're, um, you're black, you're indigenous, you're, you're whatever sort of stuff. Um, and so our intersection of identities then show. up I guess, brings us a certain value sense and certain knowledge. And so my intersection of identities is I am Aboriginal, I am a man, I am now in the middle class. <laughs> so um, I wasn't always in the middle class, but um, but that's that process and that learning, learning journey. And so... Um, those different intersectionalities there. So I'm an Aboriginal person. So my Aborig- Aboriginality um, has this um, complete whole history, as do all of my uh, my uh, identities. But the way that that manifests is that as an Aboriginal person living in a socially dominant society, I'm going to have difficulties navigating spaces um, as a male that might be a bit easier <laughs> so, so, um, no comment yeah, yeah exactly exactly so it's the where's the different uh what's the different roles that you need to play in the different in, in the different spaces and so as an aboriginal person i have a role in and in, in being on the mic and and telling a narrative and getting myself in books or, or, or whatever, um, mm. making sure that I'm represented in there and I'm giving this information, knowledge, as my identity as a male. My job is not to be on the mic. My job is to open the door. My job is to call it uh out when um so when other women aren't represented at the table with the conversations that that's my role and so we have different roles in the various different intersections of identities right and so um when we're coming to do this work we don't necessarily do this work as an individual let's just um, do this work on aboriginality and and um uh, address this inequality there but we are addressing injustices and so if we see that injustice is like the Martin the King Birmingham address, right, if we see the interconnectedness of injustices where we have multiple roles to do, we see that they're all, all connected. And so if one threat to injustice is going to be a threat to all injustice. So mm. as we navigate these spaces, we have to be conscious that what is the particular role that I have to play in this particular instance, in this situation? So it doesn't become this individualistic sort of yeah, yeah. racism or sexism is just done by nasty people. Yep. I can yep. be a perpetrator of sexism. I can be a perpetrator of of um, racism against other minority groups sort of stuff. And so it's kind of being conscious of the roles that you have to play in um, where
0: your identity sort of comes to the forefront. I saw a really good quote the other day that was, it was, it was ex army, but it was, mm-hmm. it, I related to it quite well because mm-hmm. the quote was, I am what I allow.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Which is essentially where I'm sort of at uh, with this reflection process for myself is the, like, I'm trying to identify. What have I? What have I been allowing? What have I been naive to, mm-hmm. uh, and that kind of thing? And I think that probably why that quote kind of resonated with oh. me, just where I'm at at the present in mm-hmm. my my life and my career and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But what, what you were just saying about the intersectionality uh, and the, the different roles—do you did you find the like a almost like a like, well, not almost, but like a conflict in roles in that say when you were at university learning about OT and <laughs> There was like a conflict between, like you, your role as an Aboriginal mm-hmm. and a man, and mm-hmm. etc. Absolutely, and what you were being, taught, what you were being told as yeah. this is how the this is how the world works, this mm-hmm. is how the system works, this is how OTs view the world, yeah. etc. Absolutely, absolutely. That yeah. how, how do people? Because I'm thinking it, the that that conflict between the roles might be a, a place because like for people to start that reflection mm. maybe. Yeah. Cause Mm -hmm. I'm thinking from my experience, um, being highlighted to the fact that, you know, my role as a white middle-class male, Mm um, it was having an effect or in the fact that I was allowing Mm -hmm. it to have an effect or being naive to it, it having an effect on my work with Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people, Mm -hmm. um, that I think what, that was what was jarring me was that conflict between those two mm. roles internally mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. did you did you find that learning or is this something that kind of in hindsight clicked over or?
2: Yeah. yeah so um obviously personally when you are in those situations like it's a lot of the work is going to be done um uh, if you're not socialised um, um, with those particular skill sets or to see um, the other or otherness or anything like that, a lot of the uh, work for a lot of social dominant group is going to be um, in hindsight. <laughs> and so it's going gonna, it's gonna to be until, oh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit awkward or a bit weird or but going through that and going through um university and obviously the stuff we're talking about curriculum right the stuff we're talking about curriculum like there's a certain curriculum that is being um taught from a different from a certain perspective with certain values being influenced in it and so getting to that point in time in my life where um i i loved reading and so i had some of the tools to, to think about some of these some of these things and so when i was taught concepts i would be sitting there critically reflecting on how does that intersect with the various identities I come with. and so there might be a particular uh, and i guess that that is um the concept around objectivity right that we're taught in university that we are objective and we have to be objective therapists mm. and we can do this well objectivity is and um uh, it, uh not only a direct ND, but a, a couple of critical race there is talk about this objectivity is just a group collective um subjectivity and so it's objectivity <laughs> is deemed by those who deem it as objective and so learning about objectivity in in university i would be oh, yeah I'm not, I'm not too sure I'm about that one <laughs> and so i'd have to then how does that influence my practice Well, the way that I influence it and how I'm going to be an occupational therapist is by being conscious that I can't be objective that I, I'm going to come with these biases and being, how can I then set up a system and structure where I can account for these biases? So if, mm. I, if I come in and I'm just like, well, I, I'm going to naturally gravitate to um, what is your cultural identity? What is how you're going to navigate and what is this? And the person the individual comes in and they're just like, well, I just want some help with my foot. <laughs> 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 then um, how am I... I yes, I'm going to account for, for these things and, yes, I'm going to go help that person with the injury that, that that they have but I am going to be conscious that I do think I do come with those particular, particular biases and I don't want that person to particularly come back with the same problem with their foot when I realise that where they are working is not... Um, um, going to be helpful for um, supporting their foot it's going to be like well mm. there's some work there that's going to have to be done to the the workplace or, or something like that and then well there's work that's going to be done on uh, a team level there there's going to be work that's going to be done on an organizational level and so this um, um um process there that i have a role to play on multiple levels not just treating the
0: foot that has just blown my mind wide <laughs> open again <laughs> <laughs> I've ne- <laughs> I've never thought of objectivity like that mm. and it's completely true
2: mm.
0: Mm. I, Wow, mm. okay.
2: <laughs> but going through that process and coming to these realizations, yeah. then now you can start that process of reflecting that. Right? And so after you yeah um, uh, had this had this podcast chat uh, right, you're gonna go away and then think about that then you're going to think, well, how can I then do something about that process? And so yeah. then, then you've got to uh, go through that process and find the medium that works for you as far as accessing that information. Is it books? Is it readings? Is it podcasts? Is it um, YouTube clips? Is it, um, is it talking with, with another expert sort of stuff? What's the yep. medium that works for you that's going to get you the knowledges to be able to um, import on, sorry, um, implement
0: how you're going to account for objectivity now. So, wow. So, in reflecting on that, so every, I guess, objective thing then has a, a root in either a group or a culture or mm-hmm. like objective thought, I guess. Yep. Everything that we measure, which makes total sense, because, say, for example, in uh, if we're doing a mental state exam in, in mental health there's it's meant to be all objective it's meant to be what you mm. see what you describe but when you're learning about it they give you the specific language yeah. to use it and it's not common language usually no, no. Mm. that that's mm. I'm speechless. Yeah, and, and I. <laughs> yep, sorry, J, you
1: sorry. I was just going to say, and 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 therein lies, um, you know, a conversation for a whole other podcast around, yeah. um, you know, the importance of dynamic assessment and and, and assessment mm. that, um, you know, for for lots of the standardized assessments that, OTs use, um, you know. Many, you know, are now developed in Australia but many are not. So, even mm-hmm. the Australian context is is not always um, considered in, in that sort of standardisation mm. process. Um, and, and then when they are developed, you know, in Australia, are they developed by, um, you know, alongside Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and therefore how valid and reliable are they? and how do we enable our OTs in training and our current OTs to yeah. be able to rely on dynamic assessment approaches that truly yeah. value the strengths of the people that they work exactly,
2: with. Exactly, exactly. And just to say on um, standard standardise, uh, standardised testing, so the history of standardised testing was back in the 1800s with a um, statistician, um, Francis, Francis Galton, and so he um, um, hypothesised that um, there's a um, certain standard of intelligence and this is where um, some of the sciences sort of help to perpetuate some of the racist sort of, sort of stuff. And so he's got this book called um, Hereditary Genius and in it he, he hypothesises that the average intellectual intelligence of um, uh, what they talked about and the terminology they used at that point um uh, negro race um so those that were um taken from africa um over to america for slavery is lower than um the uh white um uh, race i guess at at that point in time and Mm so um he hypothesized that i can prove this as as a as a as a standard as a and i can i can um um uh, and create a system and structure that, that can test this. And so he, he failed in doing this to test um, his um, uh, racist hypothesis. But there was another um, uh, French and, and English um, statisticians that took took this up, um, Benet and Simon, uh, sorry, um, Albert Benet and Theodore Simon. And um, they developed an IQ test in 1905 Um, and was revised and delivered in 1916. And it showed enormous significant racial differences in general intelligence. So rather than just accounting for... um, then the then I guess the nature versus nurture sort of sort of debates and sort of the nature that these individuals were taken from and you're not giving them an education, you're completely being um, um, enslaved and dispossessed and disempowered. And to to try and do a, a test to say that somebody who has access to books and to resources to be able to improve certain um, um, brain functions and to test these two and say yes now, that's the um, that's the the difference that 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 um, proves that um, this is um, superior. And so, sciences has this history of this racist sciences sort of stuff. And so, if we're using standardized tests that are based in this racist science history, then mm. and we've gone on that process that that okay, well, this was a tool that was created at that. Is that history still in that tool? And so, the, what we see that. Um, Uh, um, I guess um, manifested now is that standardized tests are created with um, um, uh, children from a particular area that might be a um, certain class or certain access to certain resources and we're putting that standardized test onto another group of children that might necessarily be in a remote community that's not (laughs) going to (laughs) work
0: So, and that's one of the things hmm. I always I always ask my students whenever they're talking like I'd oh, like to them standardized tests are the gold standard I'm like but do you know who they're standardized against yeah. mm-hmm. because that's that's going to be the big tell like if this standard this is standardized against you know middle class white Englishmen and you're trying hmm. to apply it in say an aboriginal community or in with North Queensland or with women or with women or, or, with women, or hmm. anyone other hmm. than that particular right. population you're going to be different and what you were saying just then kind of reminds me uh and I probably tap, uh, touches on your sort of relative uh objectivity you were talking about before Jodie, um in the the fitness industry uh people talk about fitness and what fitness is and this is fitness and this is the you know people have an image of <laughs> what they think like what is peak fitness kind mm-hmm. of thing. And it's generally what, what most people don't think about is fitness is often sport specific mm-hmm. or not
2: so like specific. if you're a marathon mm-hmm. runner,
0: being able to run probably just over forty two kilometers at the fastest you can is the measure of fitness. Mm-hmm. Whereas for someone like me or someone who engages in powerlifting or strength sports, like strength endurance mm-hmm. and peak force output yep. is fitness.
2: Mm-hmm. But
0: it's probably not often it wouldn't be what most people would picture when they think fitness, because the other thing is people talk about, oh, this person's so fit, and it might be say bodybuilding. I don't care who you are, bodybuilding's an eating disorder. Like, like bodybuilding has so many terrible habits, and I know people enjoy it and they get a lot of other stuff out of it, but to me, that's not fitness. So it's, it just reminds me of that sort of concept where everyone, we're all using the same word but yeah. it's going to be very specific to you know, what you need from your sport or what you yeah. expect from yeah. whatever tra- sort of training you're doing.
2: Mm. And so we apply that logic into stuff like that around fitness, around stuff like that, but we don't include race and the racial constructs into that logic. We haven't done mm. that. We don't do that. We include all these other things which are relevant to our, our socially dominant group, but we don't include mm. this thing as well
0: because that's what 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 when you were talking about that before with the mm. um example of you know those people finding that uh, their indigenous people had lower intelligence on mm. my thought is well, what are, what's what is what is intelligence mm. cuz yeah yeah my thing is if say you were looking at say a, a traditional ja- uh, Japanese where did I get that from a traditional aboriginal community living on land using traditional means if you put me out there and mm. said here you survive like these people, struggle. I'd be, I'd be dead in two yeah. days. I yeah. wouldn't, know, I wouldn't know where to get water. I wouldn't know where to yeah. get food. Yep. Whereas, you know, over the thousands of years, that culture has developed that intelligence mm-hmm. in order, mainly for survival, but to thrive through
2: their process of science.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they've
2: had a hypothesis. They've tested it. They've tried it. And they exactly. Got, they, then they, then they. Built it into their structure, into their institution,
0: their yes, That society. was like when I was when I was a kid. I used to watch a lot of shows, like uh, I think it was Les Higgins, like about bush tucker. Mm-hmm. I think it was called. Yeah, bush Tuck, yeah, right? I love those as well. I watched them
2: as well. And it was yep.
0: it was a lot of the stuff was. And he used to say like, "I, you you can eat this, say it's a berry or something. You can eat this, but you have to, you know, do all these different treatments." Mm-hmm. And it was like I have no idea how people discovered that. that doing it this way was poisonous. Mm. But doing it this way, you could eat it.
2: Through their sciences. Well, well mm.
0: obviously a process, they didn't mm-hmm. just go, you know what, well, I'm going to boil that with some yep. paper bark and yep. then it'll magically yeah. be editable. Yep, thing.
2: exactly, exactly, so, exactly. And and that sort of not knowing uh, is, is um, um, built, um, being socialised into us sort of stuff. So if we kind of... Um, critical of of that process and and, then what is it that we don't know and how do I need to go find about about, about that process I think I think then we we then are going through we're doing our work in addressing racism and and inequality because we're looking at purely just on a um, uh, one um, micro level of like looking at sciences sort of stuff and if you see the value in sciences that are other than a western science and you understand that then you're going to be much more better equipped when you go and talk to your clientele talk to your clients um, or, or whatever and you somebody practices a particular thing and you can go well and well, I know this concept around sciences and I see this other uh, value in other sciences and this person is obviously practicing something that they believed uh, it comes from a scientific evidence base for themselves because it's got to come from somewhere then you can work with that person's reality and to be able to create a, a specific therapeutic practice that works with them and and if you if you're not necessarily on that pro- on that process, you're just going to do what's the status quo now, which is, uh, well, we're all homogenous, and so this must work for you. What works for me, sort of stuff, and not working. So it's going to, yeah, exactly. So it's going to improve our therapeutic, our therapeutic practice, it's gonna we're going to identify the need for further research on, on particular things that we don't know about. That is inclusive of, of other people's um, um, realities and cultures and sciences. Hmm.
1: <laughs> um i suppose just touching on the um where we were before about some of the pragmatics um and just to direct people to some things if they want to um have some frameworks or structures that might support them. So, um, in I'm gonna have to just look. So, in the occupation centre practice with children, a practical guide um, that was from 2017. There's a whole chapter in there on the making connections framework, um, which is authored by Alison Nelson, Michael Awama, Christelle McLaren, and Tara Lewis. Um, so that is a good um, yeah something good to go and have a look at if you haven't read that already. And something that I stumbled across through the Twitter sphere um, on the uh, odd occasion that I dip into Twitter Brock, you know that it's not my it's not my forte, but I saw something interesting pop up on my screen. Um, and so it's an article that came uh, it's only just um, come out, but it was on the back of, I believe, um, some of the conversations that started at the last WFOT Congress. And so the article is called Challenging the Status Quo, Infusing Non-Western Ideas into Occupational Therapy, Education and Practice. So it's written by two um, two OTs in the States who are from a white socially dominant culture, um, to my understanding, I could be wrong because I read it last week, and some of it might have fallen out of my head. But it's—it was a really um, sort of a, a, for for people who might have gone to that, gone to that um, cultural awareness training, and then gone. Oh, you know, what can I do? Um, it gave some practical examples of reflections of um, how these therapists have taken that that conversation about. Oh, geez, I didn't realize that I was, you know. Um, I was contributing to the, you know, to the ongoing white western nature of my profession. Um and so yeah, it's probably worth a worth a read as well. So um yeah, that was my two practical tidbits. Um, but my other couple of things, the things that I've had a yarn with Tirupar about previously, is just around and and he um has always been incredibly generous with his time. Um for uh, helping me unpack various things and just pointing me in the direction of things that help to extend my understanding, and I think some of the things that I've picked up are, you know, what does your social media feed look like? Is your social media feed filled with other people who um, are like you and um, and have grown up like you, and so therefore those are the messages that you're always hearing. Or could you look at extending your social media feed to include more people of colour, more perspectives that are more diverse than the ones that you grew up with? And and therefore, you can often then find amazing things to read that help you to know and understand yourself, but also give you examples of great practice in these spaces. So, that's something that I probably wanted to just highlight as well. Um, Yeah, and... And I think the other thing is, um, Brock, you just said, you know, you said a little while ago, um, I am what I allow. And I think what I've learnt from that is around, you know, if you are, you know, if you are in spaces in social media or in or in public spaces where things happen that are, that are, whether it's overtly racist or it's a, a perseveration of a systemic racism um, type act or understanding, being able to find ways to call that out in a way that acknowledges that people who are genuinely racist and are saying horrible things in social media, which does happen, uh, you know you're not going to shift that person's opinion by your comment. But your comment could help people who might not have an understanding that what they've said is wrong, um, and and your comments could help to take people from a place of oh I might agree with that racist dude to oh sorry dude or lady, um, but uh, to help them to go oh that's got some information in it that I can understand and connect with, so therefore I might lean away from thinking the same as that terribly racist person that I've seen on social media.
2: And even just from other people of color's perspective, like a voice in opposition uh, is a really, really strong thing um, because of the way that our society is structured, that if you remain silent, you're just supporting the status quo by your silences. Yeah. And so for a person of colour who's scrolling through that, you might look at that and think, wow, that's fantastic that somebody's
0: actually saying, no, this isn't right. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of the issue, and I see a lot of stuff on social media because I tend to be quite all over that kind of thing. It was my thing for a long time. Mm-hmm. But um, a, lot of, a lot of the issues, not issues, but I, I think a lot of people are coming from a good place when they do try and... Uh, stamp out things that are being said, but I think a lot of the time it's done in a way that is almost just inflammatory, and it, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't add or it doesn't try, it doesn't enhance the the perspective yeah. of you know wider acceptance and that yeah. kind of thing. So I think coming, I think OTs are in a good spot to do that kind of thing because you know we are a generalizing here, but we are a professional profession. Um, we have The ability to at least learn and understand context and different perspectives Mm. and that kind of thing. And I think if we're able to, when we do see that kind of stuff, uh, frame it in a professional way rather than just, you know, don't be racist, calling people out and inciting a riot kind of thing. Because that's not, that's not, I don't, I don't feel, and again, my completely white middle class perspective, I don't feel that's helpful because then people, Immediately, and it happens in all sorts, not just with race, it happens in all sorts of things. Yeah. Happens. I see, I see a lot of arguments at the moment around like the yeah. um, gender pay gap and a lot of people mm. just are yeah. straight up concrete with their ideas. You're not going to shift those people. But there mm. are people that have, you know, sort of on the fence or mm. slightly not sure, don't have all the information to form a, a, a good opinion. So being yeah. able to provide information... In a, a professional way that people can actually relate to and interact with, as opposed to just throwing a blunt opinion at someone yeah. and telling and, them that their opinion's wrong and your opinion's right.
2: Yeah, and people, uh, will I always, think the ability to have yeah. those
0: discussions is is what's missing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And people will always go for the tools that they have accessible for them right there. Mm. Sort of stuff. And if that the only tool they have is just a you're an idiot or or, yeah, or something like that, troll. they're gonna they're yep. gonna they're gonna go for that tool. And so, like you said, I absolutely agree with that statement. And like OT is at a uh, um, is a profession, and it's a it's a it's a group of people that have the ability to be able to access new information, um, analyze, dissect, and then be able to implement that that information. And so, if if you're going and um, Jody's given a fantastic sort of. Um, uh, uh, I guess tool set or potential knowledges that you can go and access, right? That's gonna mm. improve your tool set. That's gonna improve your ability to be able to have those conversations. And then you can unpack and, and, and call out those people in in a productive um, um, way, like like you like you said, bro. Yeah.
0: There's a few other resources, and I'm happy to throw any links or anything into mm-hmm. the the show notes if you have if you want me to put any resources like the reference to that paper and stuff, Jody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the the books and I haven't read it yet, but I just have just got it that you mentioned in Sydney and you've just mentioned again Mm -hmm. today Mm -hmm. is the Dark Emu. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. and I've seen multiple sources that it's a really good, I guess, starting point to get Mm. your head around some of that base historical knowledge and how it's perpetuated up. Yep. Um. so I, I I. mean again I can't speak to it because I haven't read it yet but I've mm. heard it from multiple sources that oh, it is a really good book
2: it's a fantastic book and it, and it talks to some of the conversation we were having about around sciences and other knowledge sets and things like that it's a fantastic book
0: and, yep. and the good thing is uh, for those people that like me don't like reading books it's also on audio so yeah, that's what i've yeah. got. yeah so i will yeah, exactly. be listening to it exactly. in the car on the way yeah. to work and home for a few weeks
2: yeah there's um <laughs> yeah i probably would have um definitely recommended that and yeah find the medium that works for you because if, if it's audio or or reading a handbook or mm. watching a youtube clip on a talk or something like that find, find find the medium that works for you so i'd probably just add to that list um there's a lot of critical race theories out there. There's a lot of people that write about decolonization. There's a lot of... If you can find... Um, um somebody that writes at a uh and i guess this is the stuff within the profession we haven't necessarily had the opportunity to develop some of these knowledges. and there's people that that are in this process and there's people that have developed some but it is it is um minimal i guess or it's 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 not as um uh there's not a whole lot of it and so reading outside of the profession and and reading um um especially stuff around history or critical race or decolonization or whatever is fantastic but i'd probably say two other books um one i i think i've mentioned both of them but one of them is robin d'angelo's uh, white fragility and why it's mm-hmm. so difficult to have conversations about race um that uh, i definitely recommend people for that and one that's um on that historical um, perspective and does talk about the um, oppression effects but a lot about racism and how racism is manifested is ibram x Kendi's um stamp from the beginning um it chronologically sets out how some of the racist ideas were created and implemented
0: fantastic i'll put links to all of those mm. in the in the show notes
2: mm.
0: uh is there anything else before we wrap up that oh, you thank wanted you. to thank cover you. or throw in
2: a, i think it's a worthwhile like thank you for providing the platform to be able to have a conversation about this i think it's worthwhile definitely. No, that's,
0: that's absolutely my pleasure thank you for giving up your time and your expertise and allowing me to to pick your brain and like my brain is just absolutely exploding at the moment so I've got a lot to (laughs) process and reflect on. (laughs) Um, so, yeah, thank for both of you, thank you for, no. for coming along and, and making this happen. Like yeah. I said, it was probably the most impactful session that I had in the whole conference and it was the day before the conference even started. So yep. um, it's, it's definitely had a massive impact on me. So yeah. I'm just super stoked to yeah. have been able to, I guess, unpack it a little bit right. more with, with you well, guys today. One
2: day I might be able to do a keynote
0: there. <laughs> <Who knows>? Yeah. <laughs> That would be amazing. Well, I, I think it's I think something that's needed.
1: Even sort of reflecting on, you know, our, our profession from a national um, perspective, like, you know, the conference that we had in, our national conference that we had in July, mm-hmm. you know, had um, a range of, of panels and sessions that were um, delivered by our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander OTs. There was, mm-hmm. you know... Um, so much more content that people, you know, were delivering that was supporting, you know, our our services and. Uh curriculum um in terms of you know working with and learning from first australians and and i think in comparison to the the national conference where Tirupar and i um first met um where we'd met over a series of teleconferences over a series of months and then came Mm -hmm. together with um with a bunch of our friends to be able to deliver um a pre-conference workshop that was i believe the only thing on the on the national conference Mm -hmm. um program yeah. that year that really was looking at um, how OTs work with Aboriginal and Torres people. So I think that, you know, in those few years, six or seven, six years between those conferences, there's, you know, our profession is is stepping up mm. um, and, again, going back to what Tia Price said earlier, you know, hopeful for the future because... Um, you know, in those six short years, things started to, to shift and shake and hopefully um, that will continue to happen um, and, and happen mm-hmm. with the leadership of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait tees that we have in the country. Yeah.
0: It's definitely. And that, the, the that's, something I, can, mm-hmm. that's yes. something I can definitely attest to. Like I've been to the last, I don't know what, four national conferences yeah. and up until this Last one in Sydney, the the yeah the content was very very minimal mm-hmm. and it wasn't even mentioned. There was the 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 welcome to country at the very start of the conference, and for most of those conference, that was pretty that was much it. it. So yeah. yep. you know, I think it's 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 awesome yeah. for the the scientific committee and mm-hmm. whoever else was involved in actually. Making that happen, and I'm hopeful that the next one's in Cairns. Yeah, so yep. um, I'm hopeful that yeah, well, perfect you know, opportunity. There, there can be even more. Yeah, so and, it's a mm, fantastic opportunity yeah. up there.
2: And shout out to I guess to our. Um, friend and colleague um, Mandy Stanley who um, has been on scientific committee for many many years and so not yeah. only her but many other um, people I guess going off and doing work and doing the unpacking and going on their journey and, and doing the readings and, and stuff like that to be able to get it to a Group collective thing that now we we see the value in it and we're going to do it sort of thing. So it's uh, some great work by some um, individuals to 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 get it much more um, prominent and not only just there but get some really great um, breadth and depth in it as well. So, yeah,
0: and I think that's one of the reasons why I was really keen to get you guys on here because I think exposure to the conversation. Even if it's something that you either haven't thought about at all or like like I was at the conference, hadn't really put a huge amount of thought in. But exposure to the conversation makes people think and um, usually thinking is a good thing for most people. So mm-hmm. yeah. hopefully someone listening to this will take something and it'll trigger a, a reflection or a thought and they'll they'll use that. That to their their best opportunity and and explore some resources and you know become a not just a better therapist but just a better, better person, person. Just a <laughs> better human. <laughs> so, yeah, better right. human.
2: Great, right. no, thank
0: you. So yeah, thanks so much, guys. I I really really appreciate everything uh, from today and and all the the emails back and forth in the lead up as well.
2: All mm. oh, oh, good. Thanks, oh, Brock. Good. Thank you, Brock. Thank you.